Watcher, episode 110. Penguins, professors and optical phenomena. This episode I take a break from the Operation Tabarin narrative already underway to offer up an interview with Professor Lloyd Spencer Davis about penguins and Dr. Murray Levick, after which I'll address some optical phenomena not unique to but common in Antarctica and worthy of attention. Without further faffing about, here's the first ice coffee interview conducted using Zencaster and the USB microphone the Newport Storytellers podcast grant funded me. In a first for ice coffee, I'm trying a remote record that doesn't involve an, a spider's web of wires and my old Zoom unit attached to my computer and a jam tin full of string. And I'm speaking to Professor Lloyd Spencer Davis, a science communication specialist at the University of Otago. I would try and list all of his achievements and accolades, but I would leave something important out. So I'll direct listeners to his website, lloydspencerdavis.com, Lloyd spelt with two L's, Spencer spelt with a C in the middle, or his Wikipedia page, or his University of Otago page. Uh, It's an impressive list of achievements and accolades and perhaps inviting him to tell us about his connection to Antarctica is the best way of getting the introduction out of the way. Professor Davis, what led you to Antarctica? Oh, hi, Matt. And first of all, thank you for the rather overwhelming uh, introduction. And I guess what led me to Antarctica was just my childhood desire to go down there, um, a sense of adventure um, that really came from the likes of Absolute Cherry Garrard's uh, book. And I just wanted to go down and experience just what a fantastic place this, anything that can produce the worst journey in the world and produce the type of men that could survive it seemed like uh, it should be a place for adventure. And you've made, is it 17 trips to Antarctica now? I believe it's 16, but I'll take 17 if you want to give me that. <laughs> <laughs> and what what's your research in Antarctica focused on? It's primarily been about penguins, penguin behaviour, penguin ecology. Uh, I've done a little bit of work on uh, seals, Weddell seal behaviour. And in fact, it was Weddell seal behaviour that I initially intended to go down and work on. But pretty much all my research life, which is now covered remarkably, um, I think about 40 years, uh, is taken up with penguins. And several of your studies were landmark in the sense that you made the first comprehensive daily study of penguin rookeries, where previously it had been every three or four days, and the first almost constant scrutiny of breeding behaviour in penguin colonies. What did you find from those studies? Yeah, well, I I found out that I have a certain tolerance for masochism, which I didn't realise I had, because to keep a penguin colony under constant observation, which is only a possibility in the Antarctic because you have the 24-hour daylight during the summer, it meant that even with a team of four other people working with me, we had to observe pretty much about six hours a day sitting out in the the cold and in the open watching these penguins for the whole of the Antarctic summer. And so there was a big commitment. But what we found from that 
was that the penguins weren't doing what people had supposed by maybe going along and looking at their nests every five days or so. And the reason for that is that for a start off, penguins, like the cartoons say, they all pretty much look alike. And the only way you have of really telling penguins apart is to have them marked. And we did this in this particular study colony by not only putting flipper bands on them, but by actually painting a number and letter combination, a unique number and letter combination on their backs. And that enabled us to track them. And what we found was, yeah, sure, they are monogamous, um, but they're more or less what I would call serially monogamous. They, they'll take one partner at a time, but they'll, they'll use whatever partner they can get if, if there's not one there at the time that's their previous one. And you identified particular critical periods in the development of a chick can you explain to listeners why why there are um, well a lot of deaths at those particular periods in their development? Yeah, I can. And again, this comes from uh, just being there, observing the birds all the time. And what we found, to start off with the eggs, the eggs, they have an incubation period of about a month, just over a month, about 33 days. And... By people going along and looking at nests more or less on a three to five day uh, regular sort of nest inspection, they would often get to a a nest and find that there was nothing but a few eggshells left. And they always presumed that what had happened, or, or there might be nothing there, that what had happened was that a skewer had come and taken the, the egg or eaten it um, on the spot if there were some eggshells around. But what we found was that, yes, schools were a big problem, but in fact, the birds were in many ways their own worst enemies. And very often they would just get up and walk away from the nest, just desert the, the eggs. And that this happened at a particular time in the uh, cycle um, that I just turn off my little computer so it doesn't beep to us, that it it would happen at a particular time in the cycle so that the birds that were inclined to desert were male birds that had been sitting on the eggs unfed for, you know, two, three weeks and even longer. And they just had enough. They just got up and left. And of course, what happens as soon as the bird leaves them unattended, the skewers do come in and take the eggs. But that's not the reason that the eggs were lost. It was they were lost because of desertion. And a similar sort of phenomenon, which you hinted at, uh, occurs with the chicks because we found that the death rates, if you, if you want to record death rates uh, against age, were very high for very young chicks between about four and six days of age. And again, from watching it, we realized that these were chicks who were actually not being fed at all. And again, they were situations, in this case, mostly females that were with the uh, eggs when they hatched and the chicks were produced. But the um, partner, the male partner in this case, hadn't come back with food to feed the chicks. And so the chicks can last, and we know this from some of the work that was done during uh, uh, earlier eras when uh, ethics committees weren't so... um, uh, persistent or vigilant about overseeing research, we know that 
a chick that is not fed at all can last about four to six days. And this exactly coincided with this peak in what we call survival risk uh, that occurs in a, in a young chick at about um, uh, four to six days. And then later on, there's another period of risk, um, which is associated in that case with um, school predation as they get older. You mentioned ethics committees being more stringent now than in the past, but in your most recent book, A Polar Affair, you describe Iceberg B-15 stepping in and circumventing the ethics committees. What what experiment did Iceberg B-15 help you help you run? Uh, well, that's, that's a very good uh, question. Yes, well, one of the things that we discovered was that uh, once the chicks get to about three weeks of age, and this was known about penguin. Uh, these are daily penguins, by the way, the little black and white jobs that cartoonists love so much that breed in the Antarctic. But when the chicks get to about three weeks of age, they clump together in creches because at that stage, they're so big that a single parent cannot get enough food to feed the chicks. And prior to that, the parents, the male and female, alternate one staying to guard the chick the other out at sea getting krill or fish for them. And when they get to about three weeks of age, the parents both go to sea at the same time and uh, come back to feed the their chicks in the creche. And it was originally thought that, in fact, they feed anyone's chick in the creche. It was kind of like this big hippie commune kind of thing. But it, it, it was nothing like that. It was that they were coming back and feeding only their own chicks. But they have this bizarre behavior in Adelie penguins. And in fact, the other two, what they call um, pygoscelid penguins, that uh, the gentoos and the chin straps that also breed in the Antarctic. And that is that the parents come back to the creche and then call out to the chicks. And their two chicks, if they've got two chicks, come running over. And then instead of just feeding them on the spot, they turn around round and hightail it out of there. And the, the creche is typically in these little colonies, breeding groups that they have, which offers some protection for the chicks. But the when they do these, what they call feeding chases, it often occurs all round through the colony out in the open where the chicks are very vulnerable to predation by skewers. So the thought was, well, why would they do that? Because it clearly has a cost. You know, you expose your chick to uh, skewer predation, and we have plenty of observations of that. And there were two hypotheses put forward uh, that were quite uh, diametrically opposed to each other. One um, was by these uh, other researchers, which maintained that it was a mechanism whereby that if the conditions were poor, the parents could always favor one chick. You know, if, if things, it's like putting all your eggs in one basket kind of thing. It's probably a bad analogy considering they are birds. But, you know, you, you what do you do if, if conditions are poor and you can't rear two chicks, they're just too poor? Well, if you're being really, I guess, um, uh, objectively ruthless about it, you'd say, well, you'd put all your, 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 your resources into the one that's got a chance of surviving. And so this hypothesis suggested that when conditions were poor, they have this feeding chase because the biggest, oldest chick, because the chicks, they tend to hatch about a day to three days apart. And so one is always bigger than the other or typically bigger than the other. And so by having this chase, 
the bigger one can outmuscle the um, uh, little one and get all the food. And uh, whereas an alternative hypothesis that uh, a person called Dee Boisma, who's a friend of mine and a colleague, I've done some research with her, uh, we came up with a different hypothesis, which was that when conditions were poor, the feeding chase allowed you to distribute food to both chicks because both chicks from a Darwinian sense are equally valuable to you as the parent. But from the chick's point of view, they're trying to compete. And if there's uh, an abundance of resources, it's not a problem because, yeah, the big one can muscle out the little one. But by the time the big one's satiated, there's still enough food to feed the little one. So our argument was that when conditions were such that you didn't have a lot of food, then they have the feeding chase. And what happens in the feeding chases is that some of the birds just get lost or knocked or fall off, and it allows the little one to get in and get fed. So that's what we were testing or wanted to test. But the only way you can really test it is in conditions when you have poor food resources. And no modern ethics committee is going to allow you to take away food or the opportunity of um, being reared successfully uh, for chicks. But nature stepped in, in our case, and that is this huge iceberg, the biggest has ever been, broke off um, the Ross Ice Shelf and became grounded near the colony where we worked. And what this did was it altered the complete um, ice flow, the sea regime around there. In other words, during the winter, what happens is that the surface of the sea in the Antarctic freezes over and then during the summer it breaks up and that's when the penguins have access to this open water and they can get their food but with this massive iceberg and it was the size of jamaica it was uh, i think 130 miles long it was i mean massive i saw it there uh it just filled the it, it looked like just another piece of land on the horizon it was massive uh what it did was that it stopped the ice from breaking up. The currents and the wind weren't enough and, and the ice persisted. So the penguins, the parents, had to walk a long way to get their food, sometimes up to even 100 kilometers. And that meant that not only could they not bring back as much food because they couldn't do the journey as frequently or as many times, but they used up a lot of the food just going and getting it and then coming back. So... In effect, it was a natural experiment where the amount of food that was being supplied was vastly reduced. And by taking observations during this period and afterwards and beforehand, we were able to ascertain that indeed the evidence supports the Boersmer and Davis hypothesis that in fact the feeding chases are from the parents' perspective taking place so that they can distribute food more equally, that um, when there's a feeding chase, the younger chick has a much higher chance of being fed than otherwise. Amazing. The the feeding chase among the Adelies is one of the biggest challenges to my, my scientific urge to not anthropomorphize. I watch the penguins chasing their parents around and think of my own children and the frustrations at home. Uh, you've actually taken one of your children south as part of your research. Was it Robert? 
No, Daniel. Daniel. Sorry, Although, Daniel. Um, if I had a child called Robert, I definitely would have taken him too. <laughs> I'm sorry, I got that wrong, <laughs> Daniel. Um, how did that come about? What were the what were the circumstances there? Oh uh, well, it it was. I, I've been going down, as you noted, um, many times, and I was going down in a particular season. I needed uh, someone to be a field assistant. In fact, I needed two people that year to be a field assistant. And Daniel had actually um, worked with me analyzing some of my, my data bef- beforehand while he was at university. And I realized that, you know, he would be uh, perfect for what I wanted to do because he, he was familiar with the observation technique. And so, yeah, I applied to take him and there was no one had any issues with that. And uh, it was fantastic, yeah, having him down there. A, a remarkable experience for both of you, I imagine. Yeah, I I think because he was, uh, there was another guy, um, he, he came down two seasons in a row, actually, um, but both time with other, other we always had an, a third person with us for the needs to do the observations and so forth. And so he was always a, a quite a bit younger. And I think one of the things that he was particularly excited with was that we introduced him to drinking because he wasn't really a drinker. And I, I know that a lot of young people are, but he wasn't really that much into drink. But he got into drinking brown cows, um, which I think are Kalur and something, I, I think. Uh, but what really excited him was that we needed to get some ice for these drinks. So we went and got it off the Mount Bird ice cap. And we figured, uh, based on the geological evidence, that the ice he had in his uh, drink was probably 10,000 years old. And I think that rather tickled his fancy. Um, We haven't actually given a geographic context for your studies. You were working at Cape Bird, is that correct, on Ross Island? Yes, it's the sort of northernmost point, more or less, of uh, Ross Island, which is in the Ross Sea area of Antarctica, directly below New Zealand. And it's quite famous because it was the starting off point for people like Amundsen and Shackleton and Scott in their attempts to get to the pole. And your work there, you've travelled both by air and by sea in your approach to the Ross Sea. Yes, I have, mostly by air. I mean, that's one of the, uh, (laughs) thankfully for me, because I get sick looking at water, um, is one of the major advantages of working in the New Zealand Antarctic program is that most of the access for scientists is via uh, aircraft. So we fly down at the beginning of the season and then are able to fly back. But I I have taken uh, ships, uh, I think, three times. And yeah, with varying degrees of success, I might add. (laughs) Your most recent book, A Polar Affair, published in 2019, tracks the story of your relationship with Murray Levick's work in 1911 at Cape Adair. Can Can you give a a brief overview of how you came across Murray Levick's work and what it meant to your your insights on penguins. Sure. Uh, well, I first came across Murray Levick when I started out uh, studying penguins. I was a, a mere master's student at Canterbury University in New Zealand. And in fact, I had been, as I think I intimated earlier, anticipating going to the Antarctic to work on Weddell seals, but for a variety of reasons. I had to change the topic at the very last minute. And that was when I thought, ah, 
Well, if it can't be seals, maybe it can be penguins. And so I literally, in the few weeks before I had to go to the Antarctic, switched my program to study penguins. And I managed to take with me down to the Antarctic three key references um, on penguins. And one of them was this book um, about penguins by Murray Levick, which was written in, I think, 1915, it was published. And it was the first book ever written about penguins. And it was pretty quaint to describe them more or less as husband and wife. And uh, it had a few observations of the penguins that were quite useful to me down there. But I, to be honest, I gave it pretty short shift because I was a real Darwinian biologist at this point, uh, totally focused on doing quantitative research. And this didn't seem to um, go in that direction from my point of view. And then so for the next, uh, you know, uh, three or four decades, I went about my business studying the behavior of penguins and particularly their mating behavior and discovered quite a few things that were out of the ordinary, out of what we, uh, they were not what we expected of these monogamous birds that in fact, you know, they they had a pretty rabid sex life, that they did a lot of mate swapping, uh, that there were behaviors that we'd never even uh, thought they would be indulging like homosexual behavior and things like that. And I was making all these observations thinking that, ah, you know, I'm really making a contribution to science, you know, that there's some good coming from my being there. And then in 2012, uh, a, a guy at the uh, British Natural History Museum was just whiling away time in the library uh, as he waited for something else to be um, got for him. And he started shuffling through a book of uh, files of reprints. And he looked up Levick because he, he knew Levick. Uh, and he was startled to find this manuscript in, in, in there, which had stamped across it, not for publication. And it was about the uh, sexual behavior of the Adelie penguins. And it was written by Murray Levick in 1915, but it hadn't been permitted to be published. It was essentially censored. And so this guy, Douglas Russell, who um, is the curator of Bird's Nests, it's Ness and something else there. It's just escaping my mind at the moment, but it's a very unlikely title that he has. Um, uh, he birds eggs and nests, I think it is, at the um, um, Natural History Museum. He published Levick's manuscript in full and along with an analysis of it. And I remember seeing that. And I was just startled because many of the things that I had discovered, thinking that I was the first in the world to see them in penguins. In fact, Levick had seen them, but he just had been not allowed to publish them himself. And in fact, the evidence from uh, Douglas's uh, manuscript that he published was that Levick had been culpable in the, in the cover-up some way, or at least partly, because Douglas had managed to get hold of... Um, get access to uh, Levick's original field notes. And in those, when describing what he was observing in the wild at Cape Adair, which is also in the Ross Sea, and is the largest of the Adelie penguin colonies, he covered up 
some of these observations of these sexual depravities, as the newspapers called them, um, with a code made of Greek letters. And that always struck me as being so strange. You know, like, why would you create this code that covers up your actual field notes, your actual observations of behavior, unless you were extremely embarrassed by them or you were very cognizant that you couldn't let these observations get into someone else's hands. And so that was, when I discovered that, I realized, huh, you know, A, I'm not the first, you know, and and, uh, I guess that's a good lesson in life to have is that, you know, someone's always come before you. Uh, and, And B, well, I've got some sort of connection with this guy. He was he was sort of more or less going along in front of me, albeit decades ahead of me, discovering the same things I had discovered subsequently. And and I felt a connection to him and I wanted to discover, A, what had sort of motivated him and, and B, why, why he um, had uh, covered up both his own observations, but then being unallowed to publish the ones that he did want to publish. So that was the basis of it. It, it's a fascinating story and your your voyage or journey to, to follow up the threads that Levick left behind makes for a really compelling read. I, I can't recommend oh, A Polar Affair enough. I think listeners will recognise from the eloquence with which you've answered my questions um, why you're succeeding in science communication. But uh, yeah, follow that up with... A Polar Affair or Professor Penguin. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on a copy of Penguins of New Zealand. That's pretty much my list of questions that I had. I'm so grateful for your time and oh, just thank you for, for sharing your insights with the world the way that you do. Oh, Matt, it's a, it's a great pleasure for me. And um, yeah, I, uh, my only regret is that uh, a Polar Affair isn't available at the moment in um, Australia, although I think it's available through mail order there. But uh, yeah, COVID-19 has sort of brought a, a halt to the um, worldwide distribution of A Polar Affair because uh, it's supposed to be coming out in Japan and uh, Germany, but it's all being delayed. I, I got a hold of my copy through Audible, so ah, it's, yeah, it's well, that's right. It is uh, it is available on Audible. So yeah, mm. that's a very neat half hour of audio for my series. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Enjoy yourself. Cheers. Bye. Ugh. Hearing myself fawn over Professor Davis in the past made present day me feel a little nauseated. But it was sincere, and I guess I can't be too hard on past me for that. A Polar Affair is available through Audible, it's on Kindle, and should turn up in brick-and-mortar bookstores as the pandemic eases, and it comes highly recommended from the entire production team here at the Dive Hut. I've mentioned a few high-latitudes optical phenomena in past episodes. Ice Blink, mentioned early and often in the series, is the brightened sky above sea ice, as cloud cover receives the light reflecting back into the sky off the white, and therefore high albedo, surface presented by the ice and snow. Water sky is the dark sky, where the low albedo sea surface reflects very little of the light it receives back into the clouds. Both water sky and ice blink 
can help an Antarctican navigate, providing information about what lies over the horizon. If you're seeking open water, head toward the water sky. If you want a shelter in the pack, or to hunt some sleeping seals, look for ice blink. The cold, dry, sometimes strongly stratified air over Antarctica can do a lot of additional tricks of the light, and these warrant some attention. In some cases because the phenomenon affects navigation and safety, and in some others because they're interesting. Already mentioned as affecting a lot of traverses, whiteout conditions feature white skies merging with white snow. When ice crystals in the cloud cover diffuse the available light to the point it has no apparent source, they null all shadow and contrast. It's impossible to discern the horizon, leading to vertiginous mistakes in orientation and nauseatingly false balance cues. Ground features don't show, leading people to trip over unseen sastrugi and cliff edges. What detail a person thinks they can discern in whiteout conditions can still mislead them as the lack of perspective can make nearby dark objects appear far away and vice versa. One of the pairs of MET observers preceding Auguste Courtauld at the Greenland Dome weather station during Gino Watkins' expeditions in the early 1930s thought they could see their relief party sledging across the landscape toward them, but on getting the binoculars trained on the distant dog team, he saw the word Cadbury written along the side of the alleged sledge because it was really a chocolate wrapper just a few yards away. Adding to the surreal quotient, the still air that leads to or accompanies whiteout conditions can leave the already disoriented monkey in a sepulchral silence, the clouded and still air deadening whatever sound does reach them. A lot of the helicopter accidents recorded in Antarctica occurred at low speeds and altitudes, fortunately for the people involved, when the rotor wash lifted loose snow as the aircraft flared into the hover and the pilot, relying heavily on external visual cues at that point in the flight, lost their orientation in the localised whiteout conditions their own craft generated. Corrections for misinterpreted visual cues led to unexpected ground contact at unusual angles, leading to airframe damage, but most often no deaths because of the aforementioned low airspeed and low altitude. Fog is a different meteorological beast to flatlight and whiteout, but can have some similar outcomes for people trying to keep themselves out of trouble. Of the four types of fog that form, the one that arises in the ice coffee narratives most often and most distinctly from anything that might cause flat light or whiteout is maritime fog. Relatively warm, moist air over the sea surface meets cold air from landward, and in still conditions, the boundary becomes foggy the water in the maritime air condensing and the resulting droplets blocking light and lowering visibility. Fog's not inherently problematic in that it doesn't do you any harm on its own, and it coincides with still conditions, so any swell present in the situation isn't likely to build and cause you more problems than the sea's already causing you. The issue is the lowered visibility. Fog prevents a mariner keeping an effective lookout, and this leads to groundings and collisions easily avoided in clear conditions. In waters laden with icebergs, pack ice, uncharted rocks, islands, and a whacking great continent, fog is an unwanted complication to maritime operations. The invention of radio direction finding equipment, GPS, and radar helped reduce the impact fog has on maritime safety and mariners' frayed nerves. Radio direction finding sets can help a mariner navigate toward or away from a given radio transmission point with a degree of certainty contact navigators might envy. 
relativity-based positioning systems reliant on constellations of satellites, such as the Global Positioning System, made available by the United States Air Force, GLONASS from Russia, Galileo from Europe, and Beidou from China, offer geodetic context previous generations of navigators might have given their eye teeth for if they hadn't already fallen out from scurvy. But such radio signal-based electronic systems can't account for dynamic threats that might sink a ship, such as icebergs and pack ice. By operating outside the visible light spectrum, radar signals and returns, while affected by fog, can see through it to an extent our eyes can't. A well-tuned radar can identify coastlines, icebergs, bergy bits and ice flows down to the metre square scale, depending on the sea state and the finesse with which the radar system can be tuned to the circumstances and the degree to which the operator knows how to take advantage of that finesse, and so offer a previously unavailable degree of certainty about what ice mass is barrelling along through the darkness or fog in the local currents and winds and is about to send your erstwhile floating home to the bottom. Proper lookout and attention to navigation aren't nulled by the presence of a working radar unit, but they are supplemented by it. Fog can be contained in and sustained by a marine layer. With the Earth's surface receiving a lot of thermal energy from the Sun each day, the air near the ground tends to be warmer than that higher up. Sometimes, particularly in temperate and polar regions, the sea surface draws a lot of thermal energy back out of the air at the sea-air interface, and in still conditions, this can lead to a temperature inversion in which a layer of cool, dense air lies beneath a layer of warmer, less dense air. Density disparities between these layers of air at different temperatures and humidities can prevent mixing across the interface. The phenomenon requires application of the awesome word immiscibility, which means unable to mix, and it's roughly the same physics that prevents warmer water from north of the convergence passing into the southern ocean. The fluid bodies either side of the interface are immiscible due to differences in their temperature and salinity, both of which affect the water density, so they don't mix in spite of their relative chemical similarity. It's not as strong an immiscibility as oil and water, but you can demonstrate the phenomenon at home with some water, salt and food dye. Make a cold salty mix and place it in a container. Make a warm fresh mix, add a couple of drops of food dye to it and pour it as gently as you can manage into the same container. If you just dump it in, the kinetic energy imparted by your clumsy actions will overcome the physical property you're trying to illustrate. But if you pour the coloured water in gently, perhaps taking advantage of the container wall to give you a nice capillary action mediated laminar flow, you'll end up with two visibly distinct layers that will only begin blending after thermodynamics takes care of the temperature gradient and diffusion sees the salt concentration approach equilibrium. Until you stir it, because kinetic energy from waves and wind and currents and so on. You can bring ice into the mix if you want to make traffic light water. Physical force in the form of wind-driven currents and waves in both the water example across the convergence and in the atmospheric example of the temperature inversion pushes the two fluid bodies to begin mixing at the interface, overcoming the miscibility issues the two fluids experienced with one another. The presence of a marine layer on a still day increases the likelihood of fog as the water held close to the sea surface becomes increasingly humid through evaporation, and increases the density and staying power of that fog. Sometimes an apparently impenetrable fog experienced at sea level is only a few tens of metres thick and you can find beautiful views across the top of it by climbing to an elevation above the marine layer for that particular point in time.
That might help you navigate, but it won't spot the bergs and the bergy bits for you, other than the really big ones that similarly poke out above the marine layer. So again, radar is a useful tool in such circumstances. In late 2019, devoid of other responsibilities, I enjoyed a transit down the Gerlash Strait in fog that varied in thickness from 10 to 20 metres above the sea's surface. Riding atop the flying bridge of the vessel carrying me south, I was sequentially bathed in bright, low-angle evening sunshine and plunged into a gloomy world of silhouettes. Occasionally, the ship received sunlight on one side while fog shrouded the other, leading to spectacular rainbows on the shadow side of the ship so sharply defined and so apparently close, I could make out my shadow at their centre, waving back at my naturally phenomenally overjoyed and frantically waving self. Auroras are spilling off our ionosphere all the time, whether we can see them or not. In the magnetosphere region of the atmosphere, charged particles whizzing about in trajectories determined by the Earth's magnetic field are amped up or knocked off course by charged particles released by the Sun in the form of solar winds. Some of the interactions between magnetospheric and solar wind charged particles result in shifts from high to low energy states and the excess energy is released as light. Shimmering curtains of silent, wavering colour become visible any time the effect is strong enough and the surrounding sky is dark enough. While it's strongest at high latitudes, the effect does reach into the temperate areas. On dark, moonless nights, I've seen a faint redness along the southern horizon at Melbourne's 38 degrees south, and I've seen quite strong red curtains appear on the southern horizon at Dunedin's 45 degrees south, but these experiences didn't prepare me for the range of colours and the creepy intensity I witnessed in the night sky over Nook in the late northern summer of 2017. Aurora are beautiful to the point of transfixing, and are faintly unsettling in their silent dancing and in that they commence and cease without apparent cue. The strength of auroral activity is dependent on the excitement happening on the sun, which experiences quiet and noisy years in terms of sunspots and the associated radiation output. Mirages are common in the cold, dry air of Antarctica, with coastlines appearing vertically stretched above the horizon, or even ships appearing in phantom form above the horizon behind which they're otherwise hidden. Fata Morgana is the Italian form name of the Arthurian character Morgan Le Fay, the fairy half-sister of King Arthur, who took her half-sibling to Avalon after the final battle at Camelan. Associated with the salt sea fairies alleged to doom sailors in the vicinity of Sicily, the legendary Morgana became the focus of stories of ghostly ships riding above the horizon in the Straits of Messina. Now we know that the phenomenon, rather than arising from Dutch East Indian Company captains doomed to sail forever looking for their missing rudder because of a demonic bargain geared to improve transit times, is actually caused by the light bending properties of air at different densities. As with the marine layer constrained fogs, the conditions leading to the sighting of a Fata Morgana involve a temperature inversion. Air cools at sea level and forms a distinct density layer beneath a warmer air layer. If still conditions allow the two layers to stabilise for long enough, they can form an atmospheric duct that will refract light and sound like a lens. Light reflecting off an object behind the horizon can bend down and reveal an image of that object to an observer lying beyond the straight line visual field afforded by the curved earth.
making the Bedford Level experiment a dodgy proposition on which to place your bet in the days before decent weather forecasting. Windy day for the spherical Earth win. Even more fun than seeing beyond the horizon. The refraction can play silly buggers with the light bouncing back and forth between the layers before arriving at the observer, resulting in multiple images of the object appearing one above the other, first erect and then inverted, and often distorted, sometimes to the point of unrecognisability. The shape, elevation and number of images can vary rapidly. Rear Admiral Fred Bucatus recorded seeing a mountain peak appear and disappear and appear and disappear on a 30 second frequency in the flight path of a US Navy RD-4 he flew aboard out of McMurdo. The blinking peak never appeared to get any closer, but that still got to be unnerving when cruising along at an altitude and airspeed where mountain peaks are problematic. I find distortions of nature unsettling, and that Fata Morgana have played such a long and enduring role in maritime superstitions and flat earth proponentry means that I find them the least appealing of the optical phenomena Antarctica offers up on a regular basis. But at least they're not an immediate health threat, unlike the visibility issues associated with drift snow and blizzards. Drift snow is snow that already fell from the sky but which becomes airborne once more under the influence of surface winds. It probably varies with snowflake structural parameters but I never stopped to examine these in the moment and usually took it as read that the snow on the sea ice near Ross Island started lifting up around your ankles at a wind speed of around 15 knots, the height of the blown snow increasing in concert with the wind speed until you can't see beyond your immediate surrounds at around 25 knots. The fluid dynamics of the situation is interesting in the abstract, as the individual ice units aren't flying long distances sideways, they're making short hops. Once the wind-mediated friction causes sufficient row value at the ice-air interface, a particle is drawn briefly into the air. It moves sideways in the air current a short distance before gravity draws it down again. It impacts the surface and imparts a tiny amount of kinetic energy into the particle it hits. Not a lot, because the mass and velocity involved aren't great, but enough to lift the next particle into the air. It was already on the cusp of being drawn up anyway, so it's not going to take a lot of newtons. This particle flies along its own short trajectory before falling back to Earth and starting the next particle's journey. The faster the wind blows, the more the particles get involved, and the further they fly sideways with each impact from their predecessor in the chain, and the higher they fly with each jump. It's pleasing to watch in slow motion at small scales, but it's a bastard to be out in, as you can't see far, and there's a cold wind blowing, and you're probably getting diamond dust ice particles crammed into every orifice and crease, so you've got other things on your mind than the beauty of physics playing out so elegantly at so many scales. There's probably a meteorological distinction between blown snow and falling snow, and I suspect, therein, lies the boundary between drift snow and blizzards. But to me, it's largely a distinction without a difference, because you're cold and you can't see far either way. Falling snow is likely to leave you a degree or two warmer than blown snow, as the freezing of large volumes of water, even when far away, can release a lot of thermal energy as the liquid passes through the latent heat of fusion. So a blizzard can be presaged by a relatively warm breeze, which the wary read as the signal to erect the tent and bed down, or to head back to the ship, depending on how you spend your time in the south. As with adiabatic warming and catabatic winds, 
The extra degree or two is a nicety lost on anyone freezing to death in the outdoors. It's rare that wind blows constantly at ground level. Flow becomes turbulent due to surface friction and topography, and gusts and lulls are more the norm than a constant wind speed. The lulls can save your life, whether you're in drifting old snow or blizzarding new stuff. A lull in the wind decreases the extent to which the ice on the ground can lift back up into the air, and decreases the density of falling snow in your field of view at any given moment. Visibility extends out during the lull. If you're navigating by landmarks or cans or bamboo marker flagpoles, the lulls can see you to the next travel goal. Canny field guides, eager to keep their scientist or tourist charges safe, will work out the optimum distance for cans or bamboo marker flagpoles so as to minimise their own cargo and effort while maximising the likelihood someone can make it home using the waypoints resulting from their efforts. The distance between cans or flags is determined by the local blizzard average wind speed and the variability around that mean, and the speed a local transport modes can reliably make. A well-marked route allows a traveller, either dumb or unlucky enough to find themselves in transit when the wind starts blowing snow in their face, to sit and wait for a lull at one marker, to spot the next marker when the lull comes, to urge their vehicle, dog team or self onward toward the next marker, and to reach it before or as the next gust ramps up. It's not guaranteed to see you right, but nothing is in Antarctica, and it's better than sitting down to see if you or the blizzard ends first. I used this navigation mode once, and being between Cape Armitage and Pram Point gave me some reassurance that I wasn't about to fall off the edge of the sea ice or become impossibly lost on the barrier. But it was still nerve-wracking stuff, sitting on the skidoo, waiting for the next flag to fade into view, gunning the machine forward as the visibility fell away again, and just holding onto the image of the flagpole silhouette as the airborne snow density pulsed once more. Being part of the New Zealand presence on Ross Island, whose rules sensibly dictate travel over the sea ice must at least involve pairs, I wasn't out on my own when I headed out to service the dive hut on our day off. We left Scott Base in bright morning sunshine and still air. The conditions changed quickly during the time we spent clearing the dive hole of new ice and topping up the diesel stove tank, and while I did quietly like the idea of spending the day socked in at the dive hut, brewing up, munching on the cached long-life fiddles, and reading while watching the underwater world go by the dive hole, my colleague wanted to get back to base. I can't remember why, but I think it's that the dive hut had no bar. Couldn't have been my company, for sure. Anywho, we got on the skidoos and headed off. The conditions got progressively worse, leading us to apply the stop, wait, spot the flag, go method the field training staff drilled into us, and it was with some relief that I crossed the sea ice transition back to Pram Point, the side of Scott Base, and parked up. Sun dogs, moon dogs, mock suns, and mock moons are all caused by the same thing, that being hexagonal cross-section ice crystals high up in the atmosphere as cirrus or cirrostratus cloud layers, and oriented with their flat plane toward the Earth. Light from the sun or moon refracts through these crystals and creates an image of the luminous body out to either side of the light source. In the same way that a rainbow is personal, existing in the eye of the beholder, everyone gets their own sun or moon dogs 
appearing either side of the sun or the moon on a halo surrounding the sun or the moon at 22 degrees of arc away from them. As Elkin McKenzie recounted in The Secret South, and as I quoted in episode 109, further, smaller, weaker, luminous apparitions can appear at other nodes of refracted light on longer arcs of halos when the phenomenon is sufficiently strong. Sun dogs are called parhelion by meteorologists, meaning beside the sun, where the lunar equivalents are paraselli, meaning beside the moon. It only took me 47 years, but I saw my first moonbow back in March, and was well pleased at this lunar demonstration of the constancy of physics. And for once, I didn't feel chumped that my pants colour vision couldn't differentiate the full spectrum in the image, as everyone else saw roughly the same ghostly arc as I did. Weak as even the full moon's reflected light is, when compared with that thrown out by the sun. The refracted nature of sun dogs leads to similar chromatic features as on showing rainbows with red showing nearest the sun and blue furthest from it, but the weaker light of the moon gives moondogs a less readily observed colour gradient. Sundogs and moondogs can be observed at any latitude, but the most common and the most vibrant examples of both occur at high latitudes. Sun pillars and moon pillars comprise vertical extensions of light sources when they're close to the horizon and are caused by high altitude ice crystals reflecting light. The phenomenon isn't confined to astronomical light sources, and you can see light pillars spilling upward off terrestrial lights. Of the various halo effects lights in the sky can produce, they're the least spectacular, but they're still pretty damn cool. Calling attention this episode to the output of Dmitry Mitya Kiselev, a fellow polar guide and polar history devotee, Dmitry runs the Facebook page Mitya's Polar Curiosity Shop which is a fount of well-written and curated articles about the high latitudes. He's working on a book about Russia's first base in Franz Joseph land, and I look forward to reading it, though there's some 2020-ness getting in the way of that project at the moment. You can find the mean of his mode at his page, and a link by which you can help out if you're willing and able. In terms of Antarctic for your ears, Harry Seegers launched the second season of the Antarctica New Zealand-focused Antarctica Unfrozen podcast series, and while it's been going for some time, the series Time to Eat the Dogs only showed up on my radar recently, and offers its own unique blend of interviews and accounts of exploration and associated matters. Antarctic Stories is yet to launch its second season, though I understand it is in production. Shout out this episode to Alan Davies, local musician and storyteller and co-presenter in the Newport Storytellers podcast, episode four of which is currently awaiting my editing attention. Take care and appreciate your coffee.